Okay, good morning. Uh, while they are taking roll, I will, I will try to make you smile. I was struggling to figure out how lightning worked and then it struck me. <laughs> you know, all the, the time you're here at Midland Christian, it's always about, you know, success, success. We, we want you out of success. You need to be successful. Let me tell you one word, decapitation. That's how you get ahead. All right? I'm just saying. Uh, would you mind bowing your head in reverence and respect? And we're going to start off with a prayer because I definitely need prayers. So, Father Yehovah, I thank you so much for each and every one of these human beings that you've just allowed uh, us as teachers to be uh, interwoven with our, our paths crossed together. And, and I, I celebrate and, and bless their lives, and I thank you so much for them. Father, I pray that you would open all of our ears this morning because what I'm going to say doesn't come from me. It's all yours. And so I just pray that you would fill me with power to be able to speak your truth in love and that it would be received with hearts that are prepared, hearts that are tender, and that have been cleared of the rocks and the weeds that they're good soil hearts, God. Thank you so much for each and every person. Thank you so much for Jesus and all that his death and resurrection accomplished far more than just forgiveness of sins. So we love you and bless you in his name. Amen. Okay. Are you ready to take some notes? I, uh, this is a, a, some time that I look very forward to. Uh, I love Wednesdays because I get to be with more of you than just the 21 of you, and I feel the time crunch. I know we're all excited about Thanksgiving break next week, right? Did you know that's next week? Yeah. But for me, it's, it's sad. It's not exciting because I know I have three weeks with you guys, and so I want to squeeze every last drop out of that that I can. So I really appreciate you being here. I appreciate you being awake, and... Uh, Let's see if God has something for all of us this morning. So in the renewed covenant, AKA the New Testament, you know it as the New Testament, in Hebrew that would be understand as the renewed covenant, Jesus spends time teaching some things that may or may not have ever crossed your mind. One of those topics he often talked about was the kingdom of heaven. And everybody go like this. Come on. Yeah. It's kind of like, we've heard this, Mr. Dean. We've been, I've been at Midland Christian since I was knee-high to a grasshopper, right? And since I was this big, I've been here. I've been hearing about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus talks about, I know, I know. No, you don't. That's why I feel like I have to share this stuff with you because I just found this stuff out. And um, that's the reason I've got my little Britney Spears mic on today is because this is one of those teachings that no one's ever heard, at least out of my mouth. So... Jesus often talks about the kingdom of heaven, and he did so by using pictures. Remember a few weeks back, we talked about the Bible is actually written in picture more than it is in definition. So he used familiar pictures, but not familiar to you and me, familiar to the people in his day. And so maybe that's why some of these things are lost on us. So he often compares heavenly things or spiritual things or unseen invisible things, truths, 
with something that is visible, tangible, has a smell, has a feel to it. And that's pretty awesome. To what does he compare the kingdom of God? What pictures does he use? Can you guys think of any just right off the top of your head? Mustard seed. Parable of the wedding feast? Parable of the ten virgins. Yes, that's right. I'm very surprised. Anybody else? In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. I don't know if you know this, but heaven is an evasive pronoun. Do you know what evasive means? Do you know what an evasive maneuver is? I've seen some of you being chased by the police and you do these evasive maneuvers. You're trying to get away. Not really, but that's what evasive means. An evasive pronoun is they didn't pronounce the name of God, which was Yehovah. They weren't allowed to say it, first of all. Rome said no. And so it became, uh, it was pawned off as the idea of we're trying to be respectful. Eventually it became, you're not allowed to say it at all. And so instead of Yehovah, they would say things like Hashem, the name, they would call him uh, Father, Heavenly Father. They would call him Shmaim, which means heavens. And so yes, the kingdom of heaven is the same thing as the kingdom of God. And so here's some pictures that he uses to compare the kingdom of heaven with something that we would, or his audience would all know. To a man who sowed good seed in his field, he compared the kingdom of heaven to mustard seed, as someone said, to leaven that a woman took and hid inside of three measures of flour, three seahs to be exact. He compares it to treasure hidden in a field. He compares it to a merchant looking for fine pearls. He compares it to a net that was let down into a lake and caught all kinds of fish. He compared it to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. If you're writing all these down, you're amazing. I couldn't do that. I just picked like the first one and the last one. He compares it to a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for uh, his vineyard. He compared it to a king who prepared a wedding banquet, as someone very astutely said, for his son. And he compares the kingdom of heaven to 10 voyagers who took their lamps and went out to meet their bridegroom. So he compares it to a lot of stuff. Today we're gonna crack open something that is not often understood. And I think you guys will really be blown away by this. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Luke 16. Luke 16, I'm gonna do the same thing. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Turn to Luke 16. We're going to read verse 14 and following. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. They made fun of him. They actually insulted him and derided him, him being Jesus. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And then he does something really interesting. He says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. 
but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. There's so many interesting things happening in Luke 16, but that one, I didn't see anyone fall out of their chair. So I'm assuming, what? What's the big deal, Mr. Dean? Well, I'll tell you what the big deal is. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. Another translation might say, and violent men take it by force. Does that sound like Jesus to you? Since John, you know, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and violent people are just taking it by force. That does not sound like Jesus to me. That sounds weird. So why would Jesus set the first part of this verse, the law and the prophets were proclaimed up until John, against the last half of the verse? But it is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for one dot of the law to become void. Only if someone had changed the law and the prophets does this contrast come to light. The entire chapter 16 here in Luke is about how the Pharisees have altered the word of God. They've changed it, and the changes they introduced have created a new kingdom of God one that doesn't look all that different upon first glance. Remember at the beginning of this chapter, we open with all the things that Jesus used to compare the kingdom of heaven. Did you notice that some were good and some were not so good? Mm-hmm. No. I mean, mustard seeds, that's gotta be pretty awesome. Who doesn't love a mustard seed, right? Isabel, sweet, huh? Yeah, mustard seed. If you were raised like I was, every single time the kingdom of God was mentioned, it was always a good thing. If that is how you were taught to hear and see the kingdom, then it is very hard to see how the pictures Jesus uses to describe the kingdom are not as pretty as we've been conditioned to think. Turn to Matthew 13. I'm going to show you three times that Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, and it's not a nice place. Are you... Am I hearing you right, Mr. Dean? You're telling me the kingdom of God is not a good place. I'm telling you exactly that. It's actually a wicked place. It's not a place you want to be. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, like the kingdom of heaven. Yup. Jesus says, not a good place. Okay. So you've made a claim, Mr. Dean. Now the burden of proof is on you. I gladly accept Consider the first comparison to the kingdom of heaven. It's found in Matthew 13, verse 24 through 30. I'm going to read that. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the tares appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, maestro, Did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no. Lest, which isn't a word we use in our vocabulary, otherwise in gathering the tares, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the tares first and bind them into bundles to be burned but gather the wheat into my barn. 
Your version doesn't even say tares, does it? What does it say? Weeds. And because our translators of the ESV, NIV, all the IVs, because they, they're trying to help us out and people don't know what tares are anymore because we're not agricultural people. Anybody in here a farmer? Okay. Point made. We don't know what tares are. So they tried to help us out and say, well, these are weeds. We know what weeds are. What, what does a weed look like? <laughs> Actually, that was good. Not that kind of weed. Goodness gracious. It's a Christian school. Drug testing. Okay. What do weeds look like? Think of a dandelion. You know what a dandelion is? That's a weed. Yeah. Okay. So it's green, got big leaves, and it, what, is, what do weeds do? They use up the soil. They suck up all the water. And what do they give you? What do they produce for you, Mason? Zero. Weeds give you nothing. They produce no edible fruit. Did you notice that the kingdom of heaven in this parable is not a purely good place? It has just as many tares as there is wheat. And someone purposefully sowed those tares in the kingdom of heaven. So typically when you and I think of the kingdom of heaven, it's always a good place with good things. Not so in the Bible. Also, notice how the master does not allow the separation of wheat and tare until the harvest time. Would this not be comparable to the judgment day? Sounds exactly like it to me. I want to show you wheat and I want to show you tares. Which one is the wheat? Which one is the tear? One is a weed that does absolutely nothing except use up the water and the nutrients in the soil to grow. Produces zero edible grain. You probably have a good guess. Well, maybe I, you know, 50%, one out of two ain't bad. Look, that's got both wheat and tares in it. Can you spot the difference? Hopefully you're all going, no, it looks exactly the same. That's Jesus' point. What does that mean then for the kingdom of heaven here and now? Is it not also full of tares that look identical to wheat, yet produce no edible grain? This very first parable of comparison reveals two kingdoms. One is a place where good seed is sown, we know that this is the word of God as evidenced in the parable of the sower where Jesus actually defines for us Westerners, the seed is the word of God, okay? Yet Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven as a place that looks and feels and sounds and seems very much like the pure and undefiled place of God and goodness. But the reality is there does exist a counterfeit kingdom and that kingdom has tares sown alongside of the wheat, and you can't tell the difference. The kingdom to the untrained eye, there's no difference whatsoever. In fact, the tares are purposefully sown there to mimic the wheat and eventually choke it all out. This is Jesus' first parable comparing the kingdom of heaven with just an ordinary picture and what results is very different from what we commonly think of when we're thinking of the kingdom of heaven. 
What follows as the very next comparison of what the kingdom of heaven is like is a man who sows a grain of mustard seed in his garden. Now, what do you always associate mustard seed with? <laughs> Brilliant. What? Faith. What does Jesus say about faith in a mustard seed? If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, hey, mountain, yeah, take a hike. If you just had faith as small as a mustard seed. So faith, good or bad? Good, faith, good. Mustard seed, good or bad? Good, right? Who in here likes mustard? Oh yeah, mustard's a great condiment, right? We love our mustard and ketchup and relish and all that other stuff, I guess. I don't really like relish. But mustard isn't such a bad thing. Some of you are like, yeah, mustard's not so good. You've missed the point entirely. <laughs> and Christianity has done many acrobatics to try and make mustard seem positive. Because the mustard that Jesus is talking about is not this. This is European, Western mustard. That looks more like coriander seed. It's a big, round seed, almost like uh, black pepper, corns. That's mustard. You grind that up, and then you can make a paste out of it, and that's the mustard that comes in the French's, you know, right? On the old hamburger hot dog. It, that's that. That is not what Jesus is talking about. This is Israeli mustard. He said, ooh, look at the difference in size. And because I have it, I'm going to pass this around. I got this in 2009 when I went to Israel. I want you to see how many mustard seeds are on one sticky note, just in the glue section. Try to count them. Okay, don't. Just take a look at it and pass it down the row. It's this, Jesus said, the mustard is the smallest of all seeds. Does this look like a small seed to you? Eh, no, it's, all seeds are kind of small, right? Smaller than an apple seed. But look at this seed. Just one in the crease of his hand at the top of the screen, that's one seed next to another one. That is the smallest of all seeds. That is mustard. That is one of the most aggressive, destructive weeds known to a farmer in Israel. And Jesus starts out by comparing the kingdom of heaven with a man who took the most aggressive and destructive and you can't get rid of it, weed. And he took that and he sowed it into his garden. And everybody listening to him went, what an idiot. Not Jesus. The guy that did that. Why would you do that? And Jesus says, right? And you and I are totally lost because your youth ministers and your pastors and preachers and teachers have said, you know, if you have faith, just as small as a mustard seed. So when the man sows that mustard seed into his garden, that's a good thing, right? Because what have you been told? Well, if your faith starts out small, it's going to grow real fast, right? It's going to turn into a tree and provide shade. And the birds will come. Oh, I love birds. It's cool. Birds come and make their nests in it. Here, birdie, birdie. Polly want a cracker? Right? That's a, all, all those are so great. I love all these pictures. Thank you, Jesus. 
But for anyone who's actually studied agriculture in Israel or spoken to a farmer in Israel, a grain of mustard is not a nice thing. Like I said, it's aggressive. It grows rapidly. It's a weed that takes over the entire garden in a matter of weeks, killing everything in its path. Does that sound like Jesus? If you would just have faith like a destructive killing force that overtakes everything and in a matter of weeks completely destroys it. Yeah, I mean, if it's evil you're talking about, don't we want to do that? Just mow down evil? Except for the fact that Jesus isn't talking about evil. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. That you're mowing down and completely destroying. I'm not convinced yet, Mr. Dean. Okay. Notice several things in the parable in Matthew 13. First of all, this man intentionally sows a grain of mustard in his garden. Dumb. Second, the statement alone would have had Jesus' entire audience just busting at the seams laughing. Why would anybody do that? No one in their right mind would deliberately sow an aggressive weed in their own garden. Yet notice what the seed that truly is the smallest of all seeds, notice what it produces. It grows to become as large as a tree. What would a tree in the middle of a garden produce? Shade. Anybody ever tried to grow any vegetables or fruit? What do you need? What do plants need? Sunlight. That's exactly right. Because of, come on, you biologists. Photosynthesis. Did you sound, I felt like, I feel smart when I use words like that. Photosynthesis, right? They need light to grow. And you've just sowed a weed in the garden that produced a tree that shaded the entire garden. Now what's going to happen to all the stuff you're trying to grow? Oh, and if that's not enough, you know what that tree is going to invite into its branches? Birds. They'll make their nest in the branches. I love birds, Mr. Dean. Birds are great. Unless you're a farmer trying to grow food in your garden, and now you have shade that's killing everything, and the, the few things that did produce fruit, guess what? The birds just have to go, Cool. Hey, there's a new tomato over there. They don't even have to leave the nest and they eat all of the fruit of the garden. Does that sound like a good thing? Well, gee, when you say it like that, no, I guess not. No, I guess not. The natural enemy of every cucumber and raspberry and tomato plant on the planet is a bird. These birds don't even have to scavenge because their home is in the tree in the middle of the garden. So to recap, the anti-kingdom of heaven, it's like a place where plants ought to grow, but people will intentionally sow things in that garden that will choke out the healthy plants, grow so big that all photosynthesis ceases due to mass amounts of shade, and the natural enemies of every plant, namely our aviary friends, also called birds, come and nest in the branches, giving them prime dibs to instantly devour every single fruit that is born in that garden. Sound like a nice place? Not so nice when we say it like that. And this is when I began to see when reviewing the teachings of Jesus, sometimes, many times, what we are taught to think turned out to be contrary to logic, reason, and just the plain meaning of the text itself. 
but we have to do these acrobatics. No, no, mustard is good, uh, but it's a weed. I know, but weeds grow fast. And if your faith grows fast, yeah, but it destroys everything in the garden. I know, but what if your faith destroyed evil? Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, and it produces shade, which kills stuff. Your faith can kill stuff too. Oh, really? Yeah, it can kill all your doubt. That's pretty good. Is Jesus talking about any? No, he's saying there's a garden and, it, and a stupid guy comes. Actually, he's not stupid. And that's the point. It's a man went and sowed a mustard seed in his garden. I don't think the guy knew he was doing it. Did you see the mustard seed that came around? Did you see how tiny that was? What if one of those got caught underneath your fingernail? And as you were tilling up the ground, it dropped. Would you know that you sowed a mustard seed in your garden? I don't think the guy knew. And suddenly all Jesus' audience is laughing like, what a jerk. Jesus says, no, no. It just, he had no idea. And they went, oh. And they're thinking, this is a great garden. Man, I've got all my fruit, all my vegetables in little rows. We're going to have salsa. It's going to taste better than roses. It's going to be awesome. And then he goes out and waters it. And a few days later, I got a mustard. And mustard is like hydra. Cut the head off of one and thank you. Two more arise. Somebody in here watched Marvel recently, right? Hail hydra. So I'm kidding. So yeah, you cut the head off of one hydra and two more arise in its place. That's mustard. Okay. The next comparison to the kingdom of heaven was a doozy for me. And since you guys already heard this story, hopefully it will be like, I know, I know what that's from because that's what Jesus' audience did. I, I know what that's from when Jesus started talking about it. I knew this analogy to be straight out of Genesis 18. Sarah is one of the heroines. That's a female hero. All right, so Sarah is one of the heroines of that story. You may remember that Abraham is visited by how many strangers? Three. They turn out to be who? God and two angels. Cool. Awesome. So, uh, and that is only known to us, the reader. Abraham does not know that that's God and two angels at the time, and neither does Sarah. Remember, Abraham hasn't a clue. So he does what any nomadic Arab would do back then, and even right up to today. He blessed Yehovah that he was considered worthy to show hospitality to a stranger. So as Abraham is darting around, hastening to the butcher to prepare a calf, he ends up in his tent shouting to Sarah to quickly prepare how many? Three? Do you remember what the word is? Seahs. Good. Three seahs of flour. And how many pounds is that? Somewhere between 60 and 75 pounds. Quick old lady, 90 years old, need 70 pounds of flour, choice flour. Quick, we don't have time, let's go, let's go. And she's taken water, she's taken salt, and she's taken that fine powder, the wheat powder, and she's kneading them into cakes. Okay, we all know the story. Listen to Jesus' comparison to the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to leaven that a woman took and hid in three seahs of flour. And where did everyone's mind go the second Jesus said that? To Sarah 
and Abraham and the story of the hospitality. Is that a good thing? It's a great thing, right? It's a great thing to show hospitality. But notice what Jesus added to the story. What did Sarah not need into the cakes? Leaven. Did you know that leaven is almost always a negative thing in scripture? Did you know that? Let me show you. Is that leavened dough or unleavened dough? I'll show you both. First one is... No, actually, the first one is unleavened. This is unleavened dough. That's leavened dough. Dang, Mr. Dean, I can't even tell the difference between dough. Dough. Right? How am I supposed to tell the difference between the kingdom? Good point. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who took leaven and hid it. She hid it. She didn't put it. She didn't work it into. She didn't knead it. in. She hid it into three seahs of flour. And everybody went, mm, sounds like Sarah. <laughs> Smells like Sarah's kitchen. It's the exact same amount of flour. But this, that's, that's not Sarah. Sarah didn't have time to make leavened bread. She didn't have time to let it rise because Abraham's going, quick, 70 pounds of flour. Okay, okay. It's unleavened. Lots of things have leaven in them. However, you can research for yourself or take my word for it, but leaven in the Bible is not a good thing. It represents sin, hypocrisy, human addition, and humanity, and deceptive teaching. Jesus warns the disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod, which is their teachings. God strictly forbids adding leaven to a grain offering, a sin offering, or a guilt offering. No offering of food to Jehovah may contain leaven, but only a peace offering, which is also given to the priest by God. No one is allowed to offer to God as a food offering anything with leaven. Leaven is compared to adultery in Hosea and to hypocrisy in Amos. Leaven does not have a very good track record in Scripture. The showbread, which was baked fresh and swapped out every Sabbath, that was in the holy place. The showbread, 12 loaves, six, pot, six in a pile. 12 loaves, those were supposed to be set before God. And do you know what the, the, each cake of showbread represented? There were 12 of them. The 12 tribes of Israel. Why did they have leaven in them? Because leaven represents Humanity, human addition, and deceptive teaching. And God said, I am reminded of my beloved tribes. And you guys are kind of puffy, puffed up, right? Because you're human. And I remember when I look at those loaves of bread. So, Leaven in the Bible is always a picture of human addition in some way. Now listen to Jesus' words anew. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures or seahs of flour. Makes us think of Sarah, but what Jesus mentions when he says that leaven was added, everyone must have thought, that's not good. And Jesus says, no, it's not good. 
Jesus is saying sometimes what looks and sounds just like the kingdom of heaven is not. Something has changed. Something was added, and that's the point. There are two kingdoms of heaven. One is where Jehovah's will is always, ever done. Always. It is the word of Jehovah in pure form. And then there's a kingdom that looks and feels and sounds and seems to be the same kingdom, but beware. Watch out. In that second kingdom, someone has changed something. Some human has added something to the mix. And this escaped me for most of my life. But now I can see clearly that there are two kingdoms spoken about in the Bible. In the one, the managers or human shepherds that Yehovah has set over his flock do and teach exactly what Yehovah has set for them to do and teach. But in the other, the managers do and teach not what Yehovah has set down. But there's a change. A bill is rewritten. A command is shortened, softened diluted. It may be subtle and slow growing, but this is not the kingdom of heaven that Jehovah has established. Now, back to Luke 16. This is going to make so much more sense to you now. Luke 16. The law and the prophets were taught until John, Jesus says. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of heaven has been preached and violent men force their way into it. Okay, I, I'm, I'm, I'm tracking with you. Where did the gospel of the kingdom of heaven come from and why is it appearing only now? Maybe it refers to Jesus' ministry on earth. That's what I was taught my entire life. To be honest, it does seem to fit, except for that pesky other half of the sentence. And everyone forces their way into it. Does that sound like Jesus' ministry to you? Just trample somebody if you, if you want to get close. Follow me. Be my disciple. But there's that real ugly guy in the way. Just elbow your way into him. He's dumber than you. He's weaker than you. Just, just step on him. Come on. I'm Jesus. Does that sound like Jesus to you? No. What if forceful men who have taken hold of it are the hypocritical leaders that have forcefully urged everyone into their version of the kingdom of heaven. Remember the parable of the dishonest manager. That's the very first thing in Luke 16. It's a weird parable, and it doesn't seem to make sense. Jesus seems to be telling people to do dishonest things, to use unrighteous wealth to do stuff. And it's very bizarre because we don't understand the pictures. This is said directly against the Pharisees because they were lovers of what? Money. They were lovers of money and they had de deliberately manipulated the word of God to gain for themselves earthly riches. Have you ever heard of a health and wealth gospel? Or that the gospel has been watered down, made more user-friendly? Maybe your church is about seeker services. We want people that come in from the outside to feel comfortable. And in order to do that, you have to water down the truth because Christian truth is not easy to swallow. It requires that you change drastically. And we don't really like to do that so much. The point is the kingdom of heaven is true. It is pure. It is unstained. It is unblemished by human tradition and human addition. 
However, the gospel that was being preached since John was not the real gospel, nor was it the real kingdom of heaven as Jehovah defines it. So if we are not correct in our new understanding of the kingdom of heaven, then why would Jesus say what he says in verse 17? But it is easier for heaven and earth to vanish, to disappear, to pass away than for one dot of the law to be changed. How much of the law has been changed for you, Christians? Uh, all of it? Because Jesus nailed it to the cross when he died. Does that make any sense at all? Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away before one dot of the law becomes void. Everybody sitting there this morning go like this. Does it feel like earth is still here? Then Jesus said, the law has not become void. Because when you do this, it's all gone. That's when the law will become void. Jesus is pretty serious. He tells the truth, right? He can't lie. He says the law is not gone. Not even one dot of it has changed. Except for the fact that all Christians don't have to keep it anymore. That should be so bizarre to you. Well, what does it mean then? Oh, well, no, it doesn't mean that, Mr. Jesus. We, we still have to keep the law. Really? Which, which part of the law? Love God. Love your neighbor. That's Jesus' law. Okay. Let's talk more about that next week. I want to talk more about that to see if Jesus actually changed anything in the law. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. I don't know. But why would he contrast the immutability, the unchangeability of Torah? Why would he say that the gospel of the kingdom of heaven that is being preached, that's not a good thing. If the kingdom of heaven is God's will and it has not been changed, then why say the impossible is actually easier than changing the unchangeable word of God? I don't know. You, you just have to think about that for about one nanosecond and go, that, that's a contradiction, Mr. Dean. Exactly. So what does this mean for you all sitting here in this place this morning? My bet is that most of you have bought into the anti-kingdom. That's what it means for you. You're sitting there this morning hearing this. Whoa, I didn't know that there were two kingdoms. And the one kingdom looks exactly like the other kingdom, except for a few subtle changes. You believe that the kingdom of God is a place where you can still be you. And still basically do all that you want to do. You can talk how you want, act how you want. You can pretty much do what you want. All you need is a little Jesus sprinkled on whatever it is you're doing. All you need to do is to be a good person, whatever that means. Not murder anyone, steal any cars, rape anyone. You'll be fine. The evil that you do can just be washed away when you ask for forgiveness. That, my friends, is the anti-kingdom. The one you all think is the right one. And if that's where you've been living, you are in deep peril. You are in serious trouble. But I go to Midland Christian. But I stay awake in chapel. But I read my Bible in Bible class. And I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Can I get an amen? You've been deceived and the wool's been pulled over your eyes and you don't even know it. Because you keep hearing, you're okay. You're good. Jesus, he, he, he covers all the sin. He's, he fills in all the gap. My prayer is that you would take account of your life, your thoughts, your actions, and return to Yehovah. Stop doing what you're doing 
and stop thinking all is well, all is not well. Things are not okay. You may have told that you're, been told that you're in the kingdom of God, but in reality, I think you've been played. You have been deceived. So to get right or straight again with Yehovah is to return to his ways, his path, his kingdom. But how do you know what kingdom you're in? There has to be a standard against which you can compare the kingdom that you think you're in with the real one. How would you know if you're in the Truman Show? How would you know if you're in the Matrix? For those of you sci-fi buffs out there, how did you know when you were jacked into the Matrix? You didn't. It was exactly the same as the real world, except for a deja vu moment where the Matrix glitches. Well, there are glitches in the anti-kingdom. You just have to know what to look for. The standard is the word of God. Do you read it? I hope that question slams you over the head every single Wednesday. Do you read it? Do you understand it? Do you want to know how? Let's talk. I'm in my room. B102. Well, not now. <laughs> I'm right here. But I'm usually in there. And if not, I'm in the campus ministry office pontificating about solving the problems of the world like cold fusion, things like Tony Stark did. Long after I'm gone from Midland Christian, that's my personal email. Got a question? Let's talk. Got a doubt? Send me an email. Get married? Pop out a kid or two? Hey, Mr. Dean, I just wanted you to know I got married. Awesome. I have two kids. Sweet. I'm going to be in Midland. Do you want to go get some coffee? Yeah, let's go get some coffee. Let's talk. All right? So, honestly, I love you guys. If I didn't, I wouldn't give you my email. I wouldn't say, let's talk. I want you to be in the kingdom. You have to be good at discerning what's being said to you in every other part of this school and your life and what God says. And if that was news to you this morning, I didn't know there were two kingdoms. You just became aware of something. Now, that, now you can begin to develop that skill. I think that's awesome. And I bless Yehovah. If you learned something, anything this morning. Cool. All right. Put your notes away. I'm sure we'll turn those in to our teachers. Even if they don't ask you to turn them in tomorrow, be sure and turn them in so you can get some points. And let's set up this lunchroom for those little squids that are coming in to eat in a few minutes.